Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word to us. And we ask this evening that you might be at work again by your spirit, convicting us, challenging us, encouraging us where needed, and that we might hear your voice clearly in your word and respond rightly. And we ask that you would help us to see Jesus clearly as you call people to in the passage we're looking at. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Blindness, it's a 2008 film that was a thriller. Uh, It came out um, looking at an epidemic of temporary blindness. The film is an adaption of a 1995 uh, novel of the same name, and it stars Julianne Moore and Mark Ruffalo. And the film begins with a young... um, Japanese background professional, he's sitting at uh, lights in his car, red light, waiting for the green, and suddenly his vision just disappears and it just goes to white. He is helped by a seemingly uh, good Samaritan passerby who offers to drive him home, does so, but when he gets him home, then steals his car. Wife of this man that's suddenly blind comes home, hears his story and takes him to an ophthalmologist played by Mark Ruffalo, And he can find nothing wrong with his vision, can't understand why this has happened, and he refers him on to somebody else. But the very next day, the doctor himself goes blind also. And suddenly there's breaking out all across the community. Hundreds upon hundreds of people are suddenly unable to see, and the government is immediately fearful, and they create a quarantine system. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? And they put all these people into an abandoned asylum, Uh, where they can manage uh, the spread of this disease. But, of course, as things go on there, um, Julianne Moore, who is the doctor's wife, she can see, but she uh, lies and says that she has gone blind also, that she might accompany him to try and manage what they think will be a really messy situation. And increasingly, that is correct. Uh, Things sort of descend in a Lord of the Flies manner where they're running out of food, they can't manage the place, the guards become increasingly hostile... And outside of the asylum, general society is crumbling as well. People are getting into a zombie-like existence where they're just trying to survive from day to day. Well, Jose Saramago, who uh, wrote the novel that inspired all of this, says it was about allegorically depicting blindness. He stated this, I think we are blind, blind people who can see but who do not see. And this is a theme that really sort of runs through our passage in Luke 18 this evening. There's not just physical blindness on show, but there is spiritual blindness. People that should be able to see Jesus for who he is, but fail to do so. And so the big question I want us to consider this evening is this. How can our spiritual blindness be removed? How can our spiritual blindness be removed? Two answers to that question tonight. The first one is by recognising Jesus' identity. We need to recognise Jesus' true identity. Have a look again at verses 35 to 39, the story of the blind man. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And when he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. But those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. 
Well, here we have Jesus and his disciples approaching Jericho. They're on their way ultimately up to Jerusalem for the Passover and Christ's impending death. And we're told of this blind man sitting by the roadside. And the large crowds that followed Jesus were presumably mostly pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem also. The size of the crowd reveals that there is an excitement at this point about Jesus and what might happen at this annual festival. It was the biggest thing that happened in Jerusalem each year. Thousands upon thousands of people streaming into the city that would swell tenfold in this week of the Passover. And notice that when the blind man hears that Jesus is going by, he shouts out. And yet the crowd only refers to Jesus, did you notice, as Jesus of Nazareth, while the blind man is shouting out, Son of David, have mercy on me. Now, I think this little difference here in the titles that are given is really important. The northern area of Galilee um, was considered an area where nothing good could come out of it. Um, it was surrounded by Gentile territory, there was a mixing even of the population. And so the Jews in the south in Judah, in the capital city in Jerusalem, would look down upon those in the north as not really serious Jews. They're not doing the right thing. Certainly no prophetic leader, no leader of the nation could come out of such an area. And so to say Jesus of Nazareth is perhaps a loaded um, way of referring to him, though true, because it highlights their uncertainty about his credentials. Is he really the one who is the Messiah? Meanwhile, the blind man refers to Jesus as the son of David. He is immediately pointing to the fact that he is in the line of King David from which the Christ must come. He recognizes his true authority. He's giving him the identity of the king. The beggar has clearly heard something of Jesus' miracles and his teaching. And in him, he realizes there is hope. And so there's this desperation in his cry. Maybe this is his one opportunity as Jesus passes by that he might be healed. Now, in Mark's parallel account, he actually names this blind man as Bartimaeus the blind man. We're told that he's a beggar. Most of the locals at Jericho would have known him. They would have passed him regularly, perhaps at this spot. And even passers-by, these pilgrims heading to Jerusalem may have been aware of him. Perhaps he was a local fixture. And maybe that partly explains their harsh rebuke of him as he shouts out as they're going by. But it certainly doesn't excuse their lack of compassion for the man. In their eyes, he's just insignificant. He doesn't matter. He's unimportant. And they're on their way following Jesus, hoping that something radical is going to happen in Jerusalem. But there's this misconception in the mind of the crowds, it seems. They're expecting the kingdom to come straight away, Jesus just to remove the governor in Jerusalem. In the very next chapter, in chapter 19, verse 11, we're told the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. And so they're assuming that Jesus doesn't have time for this blind beggar. He's got important things to do. He's heading for Jerusalem. Don't bother him. We want to see what's going to happen next. And so it's probably a surprise to them what does happen next. Notice verse 40 to 43 again. Jesus stopped and he ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, What do you want me to do for you? It might seem obvious to us. 
but it's an important question here. Lord, I want to see, he replied. Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. And when all the people saw it, they also praised God. It's the classic fickle crowd, isn't it? One minute they're telling him to shut up. Next minute he's healed. Wow, this is amazing. Praise God. So good. There's a lot of irony in this section from verses 40 to 43. I mean, Jesus is going to his death in Jerusalem. He has every reason to be preoccupied with other things, not the things that the crowds appear to be thinking about, but his own agonizing experience that is about to come upon him. He could easily overlook this blind man's need, perhaps. He really is a person of importance. He is the Christ, no less. And yet he's willing to be delayed that he might interact with somebody that everyone else is ignoring. He shows compassion where the crowds had none. He rejects their prejudice of someone disabled. It was a common thing for those who were struck in this way or in other disabilities for people to believe that it was because of their sin or the sin of their parents that they were this way. It was their fault. Jesus ignores all of that and he asks him, what do you want? The man wants to see. Notice the wonderful ending in verse 42. Receive your sight, your faith has healed you. That last phrase, your faith has healed you, could literally be translated, your faith has saved you. That's the word in Greek, sozo, which can be translated either healed or saved. It's a deliberately double-meaning word because there's two things going on here. Yes, he's healing this man's sight physically, but this man has spiritually come to faith. He sees Jesus now. He is the one that's calling him son of David while everyone else says otherwise. It's a wonderful moment. And I think the truth of his conversion and his response is seen in verse 43. He doesn't run off in the opposite direction. Great, I'm going to get on with my life. He follows Jesus instantly and praises God. It's amazing. Even while on his way to Jerusalem to suffer and die, Jesus responds to the cry of those who recognize his true authority. And in so doing, he demonstrates who is really blind. Ironically, while many are struggling to see who Jesus is, this blind man has full clarity of vision. Now, in some cases, uh, failing to recognize royalty is not a big thing. Uh, our family has a purebred uh, Labrador named Jessie. And while we think she's pretty fabulous with her pure white coat and her very gentle character, it would be hard to tell um, that there's anything very important about her. She's often scared of her own sh uh, shadow. And if you um, take her for a walk on a leash, um, she'll do a wide berth around every adult you meet because she's scared stiff. The opposite's true when we meet a dog, though. She'll pull you across traffic to meet that dog on the other side of the road if that's important to her. But you wouldn't know from this kind of behaviour that she's literally royalty when it comes to pedigree. She comes from this purebred dynasty in Queensland that wins best dog in show year after year after year. Her grandfather was the number one dog, Labrador, in Queensland in 2012, another family member in 2013. She was born in 2015, but she doesn't seem to display this regal bearing as you interact with her. If you've ever been to our house, she'll 
alternate between barking at you or cowering in her crate. Just doesn't seem to have that royal appearance. But, you know, in some cases, failure to recognise royalty is far more weighty. I mean, here in Jesus, heading for Jerusalem, we have the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. And yet it seems that many people are oblivious to quite what is going on. And as we apply this to ourselves, we need to grasp that our own spiritual blindness can only be removed if we rightly recognize the true authority of Jesus, that he is the son of David, that he is the Christ that had been awaited for centuries. He is the one in the line of David that comes to save, has authority over life and death. But we'll never be able to receive that salvation he offers if we reject his authority over our life. And so often for people today, the problem is like the crowd's problem. They had a blind spot of false expectations that prevented them from seeing Jesus. They wanted him to say and do certain things. He was just a ticket to a better lifestyle for many of them. If he could run into Jerusalem and kick out the governor and take charge and the Israelis have control of their country again, well, then he would be perfect. But bowing the knee to him and submitting to his authority as their personal saviour, the one that could help them see, well, that was a different thing. But if we've learned anything in Luke 17 to 19, we have to receive Jesus on his terms. That's how kings work. You bow the knee to them, not the other way around. And those who see Jesus clearly are often those less visible in society, just like the blind man was in his day. Don't be swayed by the crowd if that's something you're struggling with. Seeing Christ clearly is an insight that this world generally rejects. And they'll seek to drown you out. But if you're determined to come to Christ, then it's because you've understood him correctly. And that brings us to a second answer. A second answer as to how our spiritual blindness can be removed. Not only do we have to understand his identity correctly, but we need to accept the king's crowning. We need to accept this king's crowning. Have a look again at verses 31 to 34. Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He'll be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them. They did not know what he was talking about. Well, here's Jesus predicting his death explicitly for the third time in Luke's gospel. The first two happened in Luke chapter 9, the very start of the journey to Jerusalem. We've been working through this over the last three years, this journey, and it goes from chapter 9 through to 19, which we'll get to next week. The first two are right at the start of the journey so that pe people would know, the disciples in particular, that this was the plan. This is why he was going to Jerusalem. And so it's very telling that the final time that he explicitly says what is ahead, is here right at the end of the journey. He's right on the doorstep, about to enter Jerusalem. And so they need to understand. There are literally thousands of people pouring into Jerusalem for this feast. 
He's approaching his passion, the final week of his life where he will lay it down. And so no doubt as he approaches Jerusalem, he is super keen to put the right perspective into those closest disciples. They knew that he was the son of David. They'd already confessed that before the journey started in Luke 9 when Peter made his great confession, you are the Christ. But what they had seemed to have missed was the nature of his kingdom. Christ's kingdom was not an earthly kingdom. It wasn't going to be like the Roman Empire. He wasn't entering the city as a military ruler. He wasn't about to take charge of people. No, he'd purposely come to the center of their religious life to die, to sacrifice himself. But for those who had eyes to see, it was also his coronation as king. Yes, it was going to be a crown of thorns. The only way he was going to be lifted up was on a cross as he hung there for six hours to die for those who he'd come to save. But this was the servant king laying down his life for his subjects. This was the moment. Now, admittedly, it was difficult for the disciples to get it, to grasp that Jesus was this kind of Messiah. You mean the Christ is going to be put to death and that by crucifixion? I mean, that only happens to slaves. It only happens to criminals, the lowest of the low. How could the Christ be crucified? Yet it was the most agonizing, humiliating, drawn-out way to die. Yes, they had seen some of the opposition of the religious leaders over the past three years to this point, but they had not seen probably in their mind, the kind of hatred it would take to kill the man and to threaten their lives. And it would have been just as difficult to understand that Jesus was going to be raised on the third day from death. Why? Well, because resurrection in the Old Testament was a fairly undeveloped theme. Yes, it was there, Psalm 16, Isaiah 53, Daniel 12, but there are only hints of it. It was very hard for them to grasp that the Messiah would rise in this manner. But this is exactly why Jesus took them aside at this point and explained to them in detail what was going to take place in Jerusalem. And yet, as we read in verse 34, those closest to him did not understand these crucial things. They didn't get it. Their understanding of the big picture was hopelessly awry because... The cross was missing from it. And so Luke confirms to us that they had no clue. Now, it's easy to be short-sighted, to miss the big picture. I should know, I'm literally short-sighted. I'm really good at reading six-point font, which is helpful in my job for reading texts all the time. But I'm, I'm not so good on 6,000-point font, you know, when they have it on the freeway, those massive signs. I mean, I'm good when I get close, about 50 metres away, but a couple of hundred metres where everyone else could read it, it's just all blurry. Can't see much at all. And, of course, that's not helpful at times. I probably should wear the glasses I've been given for driving. And you miss out on helpful messages. You miss out on helpful messages if that's the case, you know, things that would be important to know, like the path you're on, where it's leading you. Things are fuzzy. And so often this is the case spiritually for us you know we get caught up in our expectations of jesus which often center on us it's about serving us and if 
people fail to sit under his word and listen to him. Why am I harping on this? Because it's not a really clear um, focus in this text. What is missing in Luke's account is an event in Matthew and Mark's account which sits right between this final prediction of his death and the healing of the blind man. And you know what it was? It was James and John rushing up to Jesus and saying, look, I'll have the right and the left seat in heaven when you get there to rule Jesus. So they've just heard him say, I'm going to die, I'm going to this agonizing thing in Jerusalem. And they say, yeah, that's really good, Jesus. Now, about the seats in heaven, like I'd really like to be right here. It just seems so incredible that they're thinking that way because for them even, it was so much about what they were going to get. It was not about submitting their lives to Jesus and his plans. Now, while the disciples didn't get it at this point, Jesus wasn't going to permanently lead them in the dark. It's not because they're completely dull, but because this understanding that they needed would only be imparted to them by Jesus after his resurrection. You see, verse 34 in the flow of Luke's gospel is setting us up for the very end of his gospel in Luke 24. Have a look at these words, Luke 24, verses 44 to 49. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Ringing some bells, perhaps Jesus was hoping. This is the fourth time, but this time he gives them insight. He's explaining to them and opening their minds so that they fully grasp it. They were given an understanding that previously they had lacked. They needed somebody to guide them, instruct them, explain it to them. In light of those events being finalized, Jesus having now died and risen. Sometimes we need guidance we need instruction uh, back before covid at the end of 2019 um, our family got to go to the united states and one of the places we visited in our short trip was san francisco famous of course for its cable cars amongst other things and um, we didn't do much driving while we we're in the u.s but we did hire a, a giant four-wheel drive to go from san francisco to yosemite national park and I had enough fun just getting out of their really tight car park with one of those sort of winding uh, systems to get their car from the higher place out. It was such a big vehicle. But I had more fun when we just had to go then and pick up our luggage before we departed from our, our hotels in a one-way street called Geary Street. It was just off the main road right through the centre of San Fran, which is Powell Street. It has all the cable cars running up. It's really busy. And the street that we needed to turn into that our hotel was on was a one-way street. And I wrongly assumed that the little section of 50 metres of Powell Street that I needed to go up before turning left into our street was also one way. And so there were two lanes and there was no one there at the time. It was pretty empty, except for a cable car that was at the lights in the right-hand lane where the lights were red. So I pulled up beside them in the left lane, ready to turn left. And then I suddenly got a lot of instruction about my driving. Uh, this cable car was packed, there must have been 50 people, and they were all gesticulating and screaming at us that we shouldn't be in this lane, that there'll be oncoming traffic in a moment coming down the hill at us, and we really should be behind them in the right-hand lane. 
Now, it was at that point that I enjoyed the idea of uh, left-hand driving in American vehicles because I was a little bit further away. Christine was in the passenger seat. <laughs> she was copying the abuse in the first moment. I was a step away. They had lots of instruction. It was an embarrassing moment. But I was really glad for their instruction. It kept us safe. Uh, we just sort of came back slowly and reversed and sat behind them in the right spot and eventually got the turn. Sometimes we need instruction. We need someone to explain things for us. Now, if I could have taken that cable car with me all the way to Yosemite, I would have. They could have been helpful along the way in other you know, binds I got into. But they couldn't. They were going up the hill. What was going to happen for the disciples? I mean, Christ was about to ascend back to heaven. He wasn't going to be with them to keep explaining things. What happened then? Were they on their own? Well, as Christ completed his instructions to the disciples in Luke 24, he highlighted in verse 49 that they would need his ongoing help. He told them, I am going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. He's talking about the gift of the Holy Spirit, which would then enable the disciples to understand his words to them. Elsewhere in John's Gospel, in verse 26 of chapter 14, Jesus states the following about grasping his teaching and the need for the Spirit's help. He says to them, But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. You see, the disciples' initial failure to see God's ways challenges us to ask ourselves whether we miss God's ways, God's direction in our lives, even if we have now received the Holy Spirit. And I say that because at times we want to see Scripture as the disciples were seeing it up to this moment, where just all the good parts are present. They're the ones we want to read, but not those parts about Christ teaching us to take the hard road and the suffering and the difficulty that will be ahead. You might remember when Jesus first explicitly told the disciples that he was going to Jerusalem to die, and Peter, the one that always speaks out loud for us, says, no, no, Jesus, you've got it wrong. You don't know your plan. Let me correct you. Um, it won't be like that. You're not going to die. Of course, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You don't have the things of God in mind, but the things of man. And that's so often how we look at things even as we seek to follow Jesus. We've got to grasp that we're going to follow in our lives the pattern that Jesus set. For Jesus, suffering came first, then glory. Same for his followers. Difficulty in this life, glory in the life to come. And so first we have to see him clearly, see the authority he has to heal, yes, but to also save. But understand that that is matched by his willingness to sacrifice himself to live uncomfortably in the extreme. He is the servant king who calls us to follow him rather than shrink back and look for the comfortable life like the rich young ruler who we considered last Sunday. You see, as we're getting towards the end of Christ's journey to Jerusalem, we need to grasp that the followers of Jesus are on the road less travelled. They're not on easy street. Never were, never will be. In fact, we probably need to see ourselves more as the social outcast, the blind man, 
sitting by the roadside, who needs to come forward in the midst of public rebuke and embraces Jesus and following him, come what may. That's what followers of Jesus are like. They see him for who he is. They're undeterred by the world around. They're following their saviour. Let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that in Christ, the giving of your Son, we have one who not only perfectly obeyed your will, demonstrated with clarity who he was for all those who had ears to hear and eyes to see, but we thank you too that he laid down his life, that he came as the servant king so that we might be rescued from our sin. Oh, Lord, we pray tonight uh, that you might help us to see him clearly. Help us not to seek to follow a Jesus of our own imagining, but one who will take us on a hard path, but indeed brings us into glory to be with him one day. Uh, Lord, we thank you for our servant king, and we pray in his name. Amen. And our final song tonight is You Alone Can Rescue. Um, and it really points out the fact that Jesus is our only source of healing, of salvation and rescue. So as we sing, please reflect on um, who Jesus really is and the fact that he has all authority. So please stand um, and join with us. <laughs>